Hey, what's up, you guys? This is April with the For Richer Horror Podcast, and it was kind of funny. So I, when I do my hello there, you know, Obi-Wan says every time I start an episode, I just search for it on Google, and I mean, on YouTube, and I'll just like put the mic of my phone up to this mic. And with, you know, all the episodes of Obi-Wan to come out, it's like, I can't find my, I can't find my video I use every time. So I just found that kind of funny. But anyway, so this week's episode, I'm going to be talking about some questionable psych ward practices because I just find it interesting. It's horrific, but I find it interesting because evidence abounds of inhumane treatment of mentally ill throughout history. And though it's really easy to just judge early interventions harshly, taking a look back can help us keep an evolving field in perspective, not only for psychology and, you know, practices done by psychiatrists and, you know, people in that realm. But I mean, just throughout everything, you can really get a new perspective in just about anything looking back. So some were pretty dumb. Like this one I found, it was uh, rotational therapy, which believed that spinning, yes, just spinning, would reduce brain congestion and in turn cure mental illness. Though others were much more dangerous. I kind of set this up in a timeline for the most part, going from, you know, the oldest interventions to more recent ones for the most part. So perhaps one of the earliest forms of treatment for mental illness uh, was called trephination, also called trepanation, trephination and trepanation. I'll probably say trepanation. That feels a little more normal to me, but it involved opening a hole in the skull using an auger, bore, or even a saw. By some estimates, this treatment began 7,000 years ago. But through the years, archaeologists have uncovered skulls marked by a carefully cut circular gap, which shows signs of being made long before the owner of the head passed away. These fractures weren't an accident by any means. They were the result of one of the earliest forms of psychiatric treatment. Experts guess that this procedure to remove a small section of the skull might have been used to relieve headaches, mental illness, or even demonic possession. The theory holds that insanity is caused by a demon lurking inside the skull, and as such, boring a hole in the patient's head creates a door through which the demons can escape, and voila, out goes the crazy. I actually said voila properly this time. I didn't say viola, I said voila. Anyway, that's if, yeah, sorry. Nowadays, a small hole may be made in the skull to treat bleeding between the inside of the skull and the surface of the brain that actually results from like head trauma or injury. So this practice for relieving headaches and uh, mental illness or demonic possession, it's not used anymore. So this was a pretty interesting theory. Uh, and, uh, you know, the fact that there wasn't even anesthetics used because um, they were fully conscious while a saw or a bore or an auger was just, you know, punching a hole into their skull. But uh, trepanation was by no means a limited phenomenon from the Neolithic era to the early 
20th century. Cultures all over the world used it as a way to cure patients of their ills. Doctors eventually phased out the practice, thank goodness, um, as there were less invasive procedures being developed. In the 1600s, English physician Thomas Willis argued that an internal biochemical relationship was behind most mental disorders. Bleeding, purging, and even vomiting were thought to help correct those imbalances and help heal physical and mental illness. In the 1700s, some believed that mental illness was a morale issue that could be treated through humane care and instilling moral discipline. Strategies included hospitalization, isolation, and discussion about an individual's wrong beliefs. This was some of the more respectful treatments that I read, where people uh, received their basic human needs um, and weren't, well, you know, tortured, for lack of a better word. The ancient Greeks had observed that a period of fever sometimes cured people of other symptoms, but it wasn't until the late 1800s that fevers were induced to try to treat mental illness. Australian physicist Wagner Jarug infected a syphilis patient with malaria and the resulting fever cured the patient of the psychosis caused by his syphilis. Other diseases have been used to trigger brief fevers for the treatment of mental illness. While malaria wasn't the only disease used to cure other illnesses, they uh, either call it uh, fever-induced or malaria-induced therapy. Around the turn of the 19th century, German physician Franz Gall developed phrenology, a practice based on the idea that people's personalities are depicted in bumps and depressions of their skulls. Basically, Gall believed that the parts of the brain a person used more often would be bigger, like muscles. Consequently, these pumped up areas would take up some skull space, leaving visible bumps in those places on your head. Gall then tried to determine which parts of the skull corresponded to which traits. For instance, bumps over the ears meant you were destructive, a ridge at the top of the head indicated benevolence, and thick folds on the back of the neck were sure signs of a sexually oriented personality. In the end, phrenologists did little to make their mark in the medical field as they couldn't treat personality issues, only diagnose them, and pretty inaccurately of that. By the early 1900s, the fad had waned and modern neuroscience had garnered dominion over the brain. Then we jump in right into um, mutilation, honestly. Yeah, that's right. A lot of questionable treatments begin in the 1900s. You thought, you know, trepanation and um, malaria-induced therapy were bad. Now it gets worse. One of the few psychiatric treatments to receive a Nobel Prize is lobotomy. It's also one that is now used infrequently, thank God. So in the 30s, 1930s that is, lobotomy was the first psychiatry treatment designed to alleviate suffering by disrupting brain circuits that might cause symptoms. 
Lobotomies were a clear demonstration that mental illness treatments should be thoroughly tested before being widely used. But they did lead mental health professionals to research the connections between neurological signaling and mental illness. In appropriate patients, deep brain simulations and electroconvulsive therapy are used successfully, such as deep brain simulation for severe OCD and ECT for severe mania, that being electroconvulsive therapy for, you know, severe mania and severe or treatment-resistant depression. Due to a misunderstanding of the biological underpinnings of mental illness, signs of mood disorder, schizophrenia, and other mental woes had been viewed as signs of demonic possession in some cultures. As a result, mystic rituals such as exorcism, prayer, and other religious ceremonies were sometimes used in an effort to relieve individuals and their family and community of the suffering caused by these disorders. So this kind of begs the question, for me at least, how many of the movies have I seen of people being possessed in like the 1800s and the early 1900s and had an exorcism performed on them? to try to get rid of the demon, we're actually just suffering from a mental illness. You know, it's possible. You never know. Because schizophrenia was only identified about 100 years ago. And a lot of things we identify as mental illness nowadays are only somewhat recent discoveries. The first DSM, or Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, was only first created in 1952. And we're on the fifth version now, which came out in 2013. I mean, it changed some terms like multiple personality disorder is now dissociative identity disorder. Narcissistic personality disorder is now antisocial personality disorder. If I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure it is. I'm pulling a lot from my bachelor's in psychology I got five and a half years ago now, which I don't even use anymore because I'm not in that field, but I have my abnormal psychology textbook that I still really enjoy. I was the only like full on textbook that I bought because I wanted to keep it, you know? The other books from college that I still have are just like paperback books that weren't expensive, but abnormal psychology, that was a couple hundred bucks used. All right, tangent over, let's get back into this. As the understanding of mental illness evolved, some practitioners came to believe that seizures from such conditions as epilepsy and mental illness, which includes schizophrenia, could not exist together. So seizures were deliberately induced using medications like the stimulant metrazole, which was actually withdrawn from use by the FDA in 1982, little side note, but that was used to try to reduce mental illness. These seizures were not effective, nor were the outcomes of the treatment, and researchers later realized that epilepsy and schizophrenia are not mutually exclusive, but this field of seizure-related therapy later led to more effective study of electric shock and ECT, so I guess it was a stepping stone, though it really sucks that it's like, hmm, let's have you go into a seizure episode and hopefully that helps with your schizophrenia. So anyway, asylums were places where people with mental disorders at this time could be placed. 
allegedly for treatment, but also often just to really remove them from the view of their families and communities and just generally society. Overcrowding in these institutions led to concern about the quality of care for institutionalized people and increased awareness of the rights of people with mental disorders. Uh, there's another questionable therapy is the coma therapy trend that began in 1927. Viennese physician Manfred Sakal accidentally gave one of his diabetic patients an insulin overdose and it sent her into a coma, but what could have been a major medical faux pas turned into a bit of a triumph. The woman, a drug addict, woke up and declared her morphine craving was gone. So later, Sakal made the same mistake with another patient. I would not trust that fucking doctor. But anyway, that patient also woke up claiming to be cured. And before long, Sakal was intentionally testing the therapy with other patients and reporting a 90% recovery rate, particularly among schizophrenics. Strangely, however, Sakal's treatment success remains a mystery because there's no real correlation. No, there's a correlation. There's not a causality. We don't know why it happened. It just sometimes it happened, but that's not enough to continue a theory or a th form of therapy. Presumably a big dose of insulin causes blood sugar levels to plummet, which starves the brain of food and sends the patient into a coma. But why this unconscious state would help psychiatric patients is really anyone's guess. Regardless, the popularity of insulin therapy faded, mainly because it was fucking dangerous, thank God. Slipping into a coma really isn't any kind of walk in the park, and between 1% and 2% of the treated patients died as a result. Hungarian pathologists, I'm just going to call him Meduna, that's his last name. So Meduna pioneered the idea that seizures reduce schizophrenic traits. Yes, we're back to seizures for for schizos. So he reasoned that because schizophrenia was rare in epileptics and because epileptics seem blissfully happy after seizures, then giving schizophrenic seizures would make them calmer. In order to do this, von Meduna, oh, it's von Meduna, not just Meduna, von Meduna tested numerous seizure-inducing drugs before settling on metrazole, a chemical that stimulates the circulatory and respiratory systems. And although he claimed that the treatment cured the majority of his patients, opponents argued that the method was dangerous and poorly understood. I wonder why. Uh, hydrotherapy, that's another questionable treatment method that became popular in the early 20th century. If you're noticing, a lot of this happened in the early 1900s. Yeah, there's a reason for that. Well... I just, it just kind of had a boom. I shouldn't really say I, there was a reason for that because I don't know that reason, if there is a reason, but I'm just saying there was a boom. So building off the idea, um, for hydrotherapy that is, building off the idea that a dip in the water is often calming, psychiatrists attempted to remedy various symptoms with corresponding liquid treatments. For instance, hyperactive patients got warm, tiring baths, while lethargic patients received simulating sprays. Some doctors, however, got a bit too zealous about the idea of prescribing therapies that sounded more like punishments, 
One treatment involved mummifying the patient in towels soaked in ice-cold water. Another required the patient to remain continuously submerged in a bath for hours and even days, which might not sound too bad, except they were strapped in and only allowed to use the restroom. Finally, some doctors ordered the use of high-pressure jets. Sources indicate that at least one patient was strapped to the wall in the crucifixion position, which is never a good sign, and blasted with water from a fire hose. Like many extreme treatments, hydrotherapy was eventually replaced with psychiatric drugs, which tended to be more effective. I guess at least it wasn't as bad as waterboarding. <laughs> Not by much, though. But there are treatments that are arguably are worse because they really target certain people. And that's just when it got really bad. Once upon a time, women suffering from pretty much any type of mental illness were lumped together as victims of hysteria. And this goes back far. The Greek physician Hippocrates popularized the term, believing hysteria encompassed conditions ranging from nervousness to fainting fits to spontaneous muteness. And the root cause, according to him, was a wandering womb. So, where does it wander, is my question. Curious about Hippocrates' theory, Plato asked himself that very question. He claimed that if the uterus remains unfruitful long beyond its proper time, it gets discontented and angry and wanders in every direction through the body, closes up the passages of breath, and by obstructing respiration drives women to extremity. Consequently, cures for hysteria involve finding a way to calm down the uterus. And while there was no end of methods for doing this, including holding foul-smelling substance on the patient's nose to drive the uterus away from the chest, Plato believed the only surefire way to solve the problem was to get married and have babies. After all, the uterus always ended up in the right place where it came time to bear a child. Although womb calming as a psychiatric treatment died out long ago, hysteria is a diagnosis that's hung around until the 20th century when doctors began identifying conditions such as depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and phobias. Some of the treatments for women's hysteria were pretty awful and uh, kind of rapey. And I frankly don't want to talk about them because it's fucking awful. Another group of people that were targeted by psychiatric treatment were gay people. Gay aversion and conversion therapy were very popular in the early and mid 1900s, but I mean, even before that, from what I've heard, it's still done to this day in certain religions. In 1899, a German psychiatrist, Albert von Schneck Nutzning, um, electrified the audience at a conference on hypnosis with a bold claim. He had turned a gay man straight. All it took was 45 hypnosis sessions and a few trips to a brothel. Through hypnosis, he claimed he had manipulated the man's sexual impulses, diverting them from his interest in men to a lasting desire for women. Albert didn't know it, but he just kicked off a phenomenon that would later be known as conversion therapy, a set of pseudoscientific techniques designed to 
squash LGBTQ people's sexuality and make them conform to society's expectations of how they should behave. Though it's dismissed by the medical establishment today, conversion therapy was widely practiced throughout the 20th century, leaving shame, pain, and self-hatred in its wake. Homosexuality, especially same-sex relationships between men, was considered deviant, sinful, and even criminal for centuries. In the late 19th century, psychiatrists and doctors began to address homosexuality too. They labeled same-sex desire in medical terms and started looking for ways to reverse it. There were plenty of theories as to why people were homosexual. For Eugene Steinick, a pioneering Austrian endocrinologist, homosexuality was rooted in a man's testicles. This theory led to a testicle transplantation experiments in the 1920s in which gay men were castrated and then given heterosexual testicles. That sounds fucking horrifying. Oh my god, poor guys. That's fucking awful. Others theorized that homosexuality was a psychological disorder instead. Sigmund Freud hypothesized that humans are born innately bisexual and that homosexual people became gay because of their conditioning. Though Freud emphasized that homosexuality wasn't a disease per se, some of his colleagues didn't agree. They began to use new psychiatric interventions and attempts to cure gay people having my psych degree and learning very very much about sigmund freud and how everyone followed suit with everything he did and everything he said was right why the fuck did, didn't they listen to that when he said that it isn't a disease they didn't listen to that listen to everything the fuck else but not that interesting anyway some LGBTQ people were given electroconvulsive therapy, but others were subjected to even more extreme techniques like lobotomies. Fucking lobotomies again. Other treatments, I should use air quotes, included shocks administered through electrodes that were implanted directly into the brain. Robert Galbraith Heath, a psychiatrist in New Orleans, who pioneered the technique, used this form of brain stimulation along with hired prostitutes and heterosexual pornography to change the sexual orientation of gay men. But Heath contended that he was able to actually turn gay men straight. His work has since been challenged and criticized for its methodology, good as it should be. An offshoot of these techniques was aversion therapy, which was founded on the premise that if LGBTQ people became disgusted by homosexuality, they would no longer experience same-sex desire. Under medical supervision, people were given chemicals that made them vomit when they, for example, looked at photos of their lovers. Others were given electrical shocks, sometimes to their genitals, while they looked at gay pornography or cross-dressed. LGBTQ people had long protested these cruel and scientifically dubious forms of treatment, but the concept that homosexuality was a disease was accepted by the majority of the medical establishment. This included the APA, 
which considered homosexuality to be a psychiatric disorder. For those of you that don't know, APA is American Psychiatric Association. I should have said that. Um, but anyway, in the 60s and 70s, uh, as vocal gay rights movements took the streets to demand equality, the profession began to turn its back on the concept that people can be converted to heterosexuality. In 1973, the APA removed homosexuality from the DSM, small win, very good. And so this influential manual had it removed and medical professionals began to distance themselves from techniques that had once been embraced. This wasn't the end of attempts to turn gay people straight though, as LGBTQ visibility increased, self-proclaimed experts and faith-based groups took over the practice themselves. They called their techniques conversion or reparative therapy or advertised themselves as ex-gay ministries. Their methods varied and included everything from talk therapy to even exorcisms. Scary. At gay conversion camps and conferences, LGBTQ people uh, were isolated from family and friends, hypnotized, told to pray until their homosexuality subsided, mocked, coached on proper gender roles, and told their sexuality was unnatural and sinful. For the people who underwent conversion therapy, shame and pain were an undeniable part of the process. In some cases, people were psychologically and even sexually abused. Others committed suicide after treatment, which is really sad. Meanwhile, evidence that any of the techniques were effective remained non-existent. Though the concept of gay conversion still exists today, a growing tide has turned against the practice. For the 698,000 LGBTQ adults in the United States who have received conversion therapy, many against their will, the after effects of the practice are are all too real. Studies have shown that attempts to change someone's sexuality can result in everything from poor self-esteem to increased suicide risk and mental health problems. That's kind of how things came to be today for psychology. This is the history of it, which is pretty awful in a lot of ways. I, I don't want to bash on it too hard because I'm sure at some point there was, you know, the thought that they are doing what's right and you can't really, you can, you can be mad at them because like same thing goes for Nazis. Wow, I'm comparing Nazis to fucking psychiatrists. Anyway, we all started somewhere. Everything started somewhere. Let's just put it at that. We're growing. It's getting better. We're not performing lobotomies conversion therapy isn't in it's only in practice in certain places really and um women aren't just deemed hysterical anymore which is nice small wins okay that's the rest that's gonna wrap up this episode i hope you guys enjoyed if you can because this shit's fucked up but anyway that's it have a good one bye